It's my uh, great pleasure to introduce our guest speaker today. Yes, today I'm very excited, not because I'm taking a break from preaching, but more than that, you are about to taste the great word of God. It's like a parent taking children to family to a great restaurant. So let me introduce Pastor Kevin. Um, I met Pastor Kevin about 20 years ago at uh, Princeton. One of the top three blessings for me to go to Princeton was uh, meeting Pastor Kevin. He's a really dear friend. He's from Canada. He's a graduate of uh, University of Toronto and uh, study at Princeton Seminary, Master of Divinity, and also PhD. He's expert in the Martin Luther, the reformer, Luther's Theology of the Cross. And he taught uh, sev uh, several seminaries, uh, New Brunswick Seminary, and uh, uh, recently uh, Columbia Theological Seminary, Decatur, Georgia, for almost, I think eight, well, he can tell you, eight years. And uh, also pastoring churches. And now he's a pastor of uh, English Ministry Church at Central Korean Central Presbyterian Church of Atlanta, Georgia. And he and I, we have a special bond. We are father of three girls about similar age. And uh, our wives uh, are very smart. They, they, they outsmart us. So he and I, we, we have a lot of a common bond uh, in the marginalization of being a lesser half and then, you know, outnumbered by girls. But anyway, I hope you can, uh, we, I hope we, 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 I really wish that we, we could welcome him, you know, face to face, but uh, that day will come in the future. But for now, let's all wave our hands in the screen and welcome Pastor Kevin for preaching God's word to us. And Pastor Hello, Kevin, everybody. take it over. Thank you so much, Pastor Paul. I am very honored and very excited to be with you this morning. I have heard wonderful things about your ministry. I would love to learn from what you're doing. Uh, I'm very intrigued about the house church model. So I would like to stick around even after uh, the worship and, and interact with some of you. And uh, like Pastor Paul said, uh, we do share a lot of similar things. Um, yes, three daughters, beautiful, intelligent, wise, strong wives. So both of us definitely married up, right? So we're very, very blessed. Um, and in, in terms of our calling and our, our professional lives too, I mean, both of us have doctoral degrees in, 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 uh, in theology. Both of us have pastored and taught uh, in seminary. So um, I really appreciate Pastor Paul. We actually worked together actually in New Jersey when we were seminarians there. And uh, Pastor Paul was gracious enough to actually help me uh, take care of the uh, English ministry because I was feverishly trying to finish my doctoral dissertation. So I will be always uh, grateful. Well, let me try to share my screen here. Uh, can everybody see that? Yes? Okay, cool. All right, so uh, confession. Um, I've never uh, preached with PowerPoint before, but when I went into your uh, website and checked out a few of Pastor Paul's um, sermons, it all had PowerPoint. So I said, uh oh, okay. So I don't know how it's going to go, but uh, we'll see. And also, uh, one thing too, when, when, um, I had a little pre-session with Alex, and I kind of asked that, Alex, so uh, how long does Pastor Paul preach uh, normally? I said, oh, I don't know, about uh, 40, 45 minutes. And I didn't say this, but in my head, I go, hallelujah, right? Because in my church, if I preach more than 25 minutes, there are grumblings, okay? So I'm not going to abuse that privilege but it's wonderful to know that I do have a little bit of a leeway. So today, uh, I titled the, uh, my sermon, Instructions on Dealing with Foreigners. And we're just going to look at very uh, short verses, two verses in Leviticus. Okay? So, 
Hold on now. Oh, by the way, by the way, oh, this is important. This picture was taken, gee, 19, 18 years ago. This was, okay, if you, of course, that's Pastor Paul, right? He looks exactly the same. But look at me. I mean, I, I still had uh, black hair. Look at look at my hair. It's all gray. Jamie's homonym looks exactly the same. She looks younger, actually. She looks like a teenager, okay? So there's Laurel and, and uh, Mario, right? Right there. You see them? This was actually before Bethel was born, okay? This is my wife, Irene. This is my uh, uh, oldest daughter, Jubilee. And this is Emily, and this was before Natalie was born. Wow, this brings back memories. And the others are families of seminarians. These are my parents. And so this really, really brings back memories. I still feel like this young guy, but certainly I don't look it. So just to let you know how far Pastor Paul's family and I go back. And it's a blessing every time I, I remember him and his family. Okay, so Leviticus um, 19, 33 to 34. Let us listen for God's word. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So this is God's word for us this morning. Let us see what God has prepared for us to learn from them. So Leviticus, it's not the most popular book, right? So it's the third book of the Bible after Genesis and Exodus. And Leviticus has a lot of injunctions, a lot of instructions on rituals, a lot of instructions on ritual purity and, uh, and moral purity. The setting is post-Exodus, so God has let the Israelites out of the bondage of slavery from Egypt. So they're in the desert traveling to God's promised land. So the problem that Leviticus addresses is that, well, God is holy, God is pure, God is just. However, Israelites proved themselves very quickly that they're sinful, they're idolatrous, and stiff-necked and stubborn, right? So Leviticus asks, okay, well, how is relationship possible between the holy God and God's sinful people? Because they're so different and they're so alienated from one another. Because of people's sin, God can't even communicate directly to God's people. God has to communicate through Moses in the tabernacle, which you'll remember, it was like a portable temple in the desert, right? So that's the, the issue that Leviticus tries to deal with. And Leviticus reminds us that God is holy, and God is holy and holy, both H-O-L-Y and H. W-H-O-L-L-Y. God is holy and holy other. God is set apart. God is pure. God is just. And God is all-powerful. Leviticus reminds us of that aspect of God. And theologians have said there is an infinite qualitative difference between God and sinful humans. And yet, God so strongly desires to have a loving relationship with us that God did not give up on us, that God patiently provided a way for us to have relationship with him. And ultimately, we know that God sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to give his life and, and showed God's amazing love on the cross, right? We know that. But because we are followers of Jesus because Jesus is so directly accessible to us. Sometimes we lose the sight of the holiness of God as followers of Jesus. And Old Testament is important because it reminds us that God is holy. And unless we actually try, try to understand that aspect of God, 
Jesus can become very domesticated and we do not have a domesticated God. Okay, so I'm gonna show you guys a video that just kind of, it's a few minutes, but I think it's worth it. It reminds us of what kind of God that we're talking about, God who created this entire universe. Okay, so let's, let's check this out. Right. So I hope um, that kind of blew your mind, right? So just remember that God created all of this. We're blown away by the universe. But Genesis tells us that God kind of just kind of created all of this just through God's word. Okay. So imagine how awesome God is. See, that gets to a little bit closer to Old Testament understanding of holiness. It is just unbelievably holy, right? God is unbelievably holy. So one way, the, um, one way to think about it is like this. God is so holy. Compare God as, as the sun, right? We just saw how tremendous the sun is. And we... As sinners, we are made of tissue paper, okay? So what happens when you come close to the sun? Well, you can't even approach it very close before the tissue paper just kind of bursts into flames and completely disappears. That's the kind of awe or fear 
the Bible teaches us. So when we, when God's, uh, when the Bible says we ought to fear God, it is that kind of all that we need to be reminded. God is not just kind of our bosom buddy friend. Yes, Jesus gave himself to us so that Jesus is our friend, but we also need to understand that God is this awesome, holy God. So this is why Leviticus is important. It reminds us of the infinite qualitative difference between God and ourselves and why God demanded so many different things of the Israelites before they can come even close to becoming holy so that they can commune with God. Okay, so going back, I just want to uh, give you a uh, sort of a context. So this is the, uh, the map of the, of the world. So we're talking about right here, okay? So th there's Egypt there, and you can't even see Israel. And there's a little uh, Sinai uh, Peninsula. This is where the Exodus happened, okay? So zoom in, and here it is. So God liberated the Israelites from Egypt, and the promised land is right here, okay? So it actually would have taken, if they took the straight road, it would have taken maybe a couple months. Okay, even if they walk really, really slowly, it would have taken them two, three months at the most. It took them 40 years. Okay, and that was deliberate. God, I believe that, you know, theologians discuss why that happened and so on. But God was shepherding them to teach them to drive into their very being that God is their God and God will lead them. And so for 40 years, so it was during this journey that Leviticus, all the codes and all of the instructions were given. Okay, so that's the setting. All right. So in Leviticus, God gives two kinds of um, instructions, moral purity and ritual purity. And we have some weird kind of instructions in uh, Leviticus. A lot of things don't apply to us anymore because Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law, has fulfilled all of that, and it doesn't really apply to us. And some of the, some of the, uh, the ritual uh, instructions are not relevant because, well, we're not in the desert anymore. So a couple of examples, okay? So Leviticus says, don't wear clothes made of linen and wool woven together, okay? That's kind of weird. Don't tear your clothes. And there's, there's rationale between, uh, behind all of these uh, rules, right? So don't wear clothes made of linen and wool because that fabric is set apart for the priests. Don't tear your clothes. Well, people usually tore their clothes when they were in mourning. So it basically tells them, look, don't show your sadness, okay? So don't, don't sensationalize your, your sadness or Plant only one kind of seed in a field. Don't eat owls. Okay, not only don't eat owls, but there's a lot of dietary laws to keep the Israelites pure. Now, those are kind of ritual instructions, but there are also a lot of moral instructions for moral purity. And today's instruction comes from moral instruction, okay? It has to do with how to uh, treat strangers and the consistent commandment to take care of those who are marginalized, who are oppressed, the widows and the orphans. So it's a commandment how to treat strangers and foreigners among us. And one thing that we have to understand is this. You know, Israelites could have said, hey, God, you know, you know that we're in the desert, right? Look, this is kind of hard. Can we save all these kind of instructions and, and stuff? After we get to the promised land, please, this is a lot. And God said, no, 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 no. It's precisely on the journey of life you need these instructions. You have to apply this now to your life because when you get to the promised land, you have to be already formed people, people of God. 
so that you can actually live the kind of life that I want you to live. So the first thing that we learn is we have this temptation. God, listen, I will serve you. Look, I will serve the church. I will lead Bible study. I will do this and that after, only after I get, I finish this degree or I get this job or I marry someone or after our kids are grown. No, 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 no. When God calls, we have to say yes, because it's right there in the journey of life that God wants us to engage wherever we are. Because once we think that we get there, whatever that may be, guess what? There's always, always other stuff. We will never, ever be settled down when we will be ready to serve God because life happens, right? Life happens when you're making other plans. So that's, I think, the first thing that we have to, to learn from Leviticus. Wherever we are, we need to be faithful to God. All right. This text is specifically about foreigners residing among the Israelites, right? So you kind of have to under, uh, kind of think, hey, wait a minute, what foreigners? They were traveling in the desert. So this is sort of my interpretation. I mean, they probably met, you know, desert dwellers. There were nomads and, and uh, tent dwellers uh, as they met. Or there may have been actually non-Israelites who were also slaves who came with them who were different in terms of their custom and their um, uh, even their religion, right? Who, who actually became um, of Israel faith. So the thing that the first part of this text tells us is that there's always foreigners residing among us. It doesn't say if strangers and foreigners reside among you. It says when a foreigner resides among you in your land, this is how you should treat them. Okay. Number one, it's a fairly easy one. Do not mistreat them. Do not oppress them. Do not take advantage of them. Okay. That's pretty easy, right? But however, so let's think about this. And maybe we can think about the, the strangers and foreigners a little widely, right? Who are we talking about? Yes, literally foreigners, people from other countries, people with different cultures and customs and languages. It could be unknown people, unfamiliar people. We call sort of people from other countries, sometimes aliens, strangers and sojourners, people outside of our community, people outside of our immediate family, our church, people who look different from us, people with different color skin, from us, people who are strange to us, people who may be weird to us, people who frankly are kind of a hassle, right? People who kind of like we don't want to deal with, right? Heck, I mean, even in our own families and our congregations, we may have quote unquote strangers. Okay, so we're dealing with foreigners, yes, in the original context in Leviticus, foreigners, different people with different cultures and different nationalities, but it also includes people who are very inconvenient, right, um, for us. And the first thing it says is do not mistreat them, don't oppress them, and don't take advantage of them. The second, it goes on, it builds on, on the other. There's three things that God tells us to do or not to do. Don't mistreat them. Two, Treat them as your native born. In other words, consider them as citizens among you. What does that mean? Well, give them rights. Give them privileges that you have because you are citizens of Israel. Give them the same privilege, which means you have to share power. You have to share resources with them. You have to share actually political rights. You know, I am... Um, as Pastor Paul said, I am Canadian citizen still. I am uh, a landed immigrant here. So I have a green card, but I am not a citizen yet of the United States. I am privileged to receive most of the benefits of, of, of being a citizen, but I can't, I can't vote. 
And another thing that sometimes worries me a little bit is that because I'm not a citizen, if I get arrested, I do not have the same rights as an American citizen. So I don't necessarily will be considered as innocent before I'm proven guilty, right? Things like that. Okay, weird things like that. Okay. So the second part is important because, look, it's not enough just not to oppress them and not to mistreat them. Look, you share your power with them. You share your privilege. You share your, your resource with them so that you treat them with equal rights as you are a citizen of your country. That's huge, right? That's huge. It's easier just to leave the stranger alone, but that's not enough. God says, share your power and resource. And maybe we can actually say, okay, God, I think we can do that. All right, all right, all right. We can go as far as that. But then I think we would be comfortable if God stopped there. But God goes on and God says, there's something more. Love them as yourself. And that's where we might kind of, hey, God, what, hey, look, we are already sharing our resources, our rights. We have given up a lot of stuff for these strangers. But look, we can't even love the people that we know. How are we supposed to love these strangers who are different from us, who look different and have different cultures and, and they eat different foods from us? And look, how are we supposed to do that, God? And I think that's a, a legitimate question. Okay. So, God gives two reasons why Israelites should follow these three instructions. Not to oppress them, share power and privilege as, as a citizen among you. And third, you have to love them as yourself. Two reasons. One, you need to do this because, look, you guys, you guys were foreigners and aliens and strangers in the land of Egypt. This should be fresh in your memory. Second, well, you should do this because I am the Lord your God. Okay, so let's, let's look at these a little, little closer. All right, number one reason. Do this because you are strangers, and you know what that's like. God is appealing to the experience of the Israelites. For 400 years, they were enslaved in Egypt. They know what it is to live a life of oppression. They know what it is to live a life without any freedom, but being property to the state. God is appealing to the community's history, their collective memory. God is encouraging empathy by encouraging them to remember when you were there. You're free now. But you were freed from bondage and slavery. You should remember that. And when you encounter people who are still experiencing any kind of bondage, you should have extra empathy and extra care for these people. You don't come from a neutral place. You know what it is to be redeemed, and therefore, you should treat the stranger like this. Treating strangers and foreigners is not an abstract academic issue. It's, it's about experience. It's about empathy. It's about human relationship. But in order to do this, we need to know what it was like when we were still foreigners in Egypt. In other words, God is telling us, look, you need to know your history, your story. Because we too, I know that, you know, Forest Community Church is a very multicultural church, but vast majority of you are, um, are people of color, Asian Americans. And as Asian Americans, we have our own history. I mean, just briefly, a thumbnail sketch, I'm of a, a Korean descent. So just 20th, 20th century history, right? My father, who's still living, he was born in 1931 during the Japanese occupation, right? So Japanese uh, annexed Korea from 1910 to 1945, 35 years. 
So my father grew up in the Japanese school system and he can still understand Japanese and still speak some Japanese. I was just kind of shocked. I, the first time that I, I heard him speak Japanese was when our family was on the plane coming to Toronto as immigrants. My, of course, our first plane ride ever, our whole family. And I remember the, uh, the airline. It was Japan Airlines. The reason why I remember that is because my father was speaking to, we call them stewardesses back then, right? I mean, you know, this was in the 1970s. And, and these like beautiful statuesque, like beautiful, like, you know, young women. My father was like talking to them flu fluently in Japanese. I go, what the? And I kind of turned to my mom again. I didn't know dad could speak Japanese. And my mom was quite proud. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't he kind of cool? Yeah, it's kind of cool, right? Now, he told me stories about how he had, he was punished if anybody heard him speak Korean. Okay, so after the liberation, 1945, when World War II ended, it took five years before the Korean War, right? The 70th anniversary of the Korean War, which is six. To five, right? In Korea, we remember important events by their dates. Uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! was uh, what? This a uh, few days ago. So my father was barely, like 18 or 19 when the um, um, Korean War started. And so Korea went through the war. And three years later, Korea was one of the poorest countries in the world to try to rebuild. And of course, political upheavals the coups and the dictators and all of that. The thing about that history, it was a history of upheaval and oppression. Now, add on to that, the immigrant history. Now, a lot of us are second generation or 1.5. We haven't had the experience of kind of affliction and difficulties that our first generation forefathers or, or parents had, right? I know, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I was nine years old when we came from uh, uh, Korea. I know firsthand the kind of difficult life that my family had to, to survive in order to provide for us. That's really, really hard. That was really, really hard, right? Now, I believe God is telling us, look, remember your history. You may not have had direct history of marginalization and oppression, but you're only a generation away. That is part of your history. So when you encounter peoples who are going through similar difficulties, that should not be a kind of a foreign experience to you. You should have affinity with people who are going through similar experiences. You should actually be attracted to them because you were there a generation ago, you see. And I think God is telling us one more thing. Okay, not only know your history, remember when you were foreigners, but also you need to know the history and the story of the strangers and foreigners who are among you. That's important because if you don't know the story and the history of the foreigners among us, if we don't know that, then they just become very annoying. Why are they so kind of like this? Why are they so dysfunctional? Or why are they complaining all this time, right? Now, I am uh, still Canadian. I don't know U.S. history very much. But during this um, Black Lives Matter protests, I've been watching a lot of, uh, a lot of movies related to the movement. And I'm, I'm very thankful that uh, Pastor Paul mentioned the movie 13. Everybody should watch that movie. Okay, 13 refers to the 13th Amendment through which slavery was abolished. But the whole documentary is about how slavery continued just in different forms. And so it really kind of opens the eyes of others, people from different cultures, from the Black American culture. It gives us a peek into the history of systemic oppression that Black Americas, uh, Americans have suffered from the days of slavery. I mean, there are other movies, right? I mean, this is a real, in fact, 
if you're like me, right, you have like all this more time than before. I've been, you know, watching Netflix and, and Amazon. Well, Netflix and Amazon has a special section now on Black History or Black Lives Matter. And a lot of movies that used to actually you have to pay, it's all free now. Okay, so you should go in there and check some of these movies out. The other really good one is um, uh, a documentary on James Baldwin, a preeminent American writer and poet and essayist and, and uh, um, um, a person who was very active in, in, in the civil rights. Um, the movie is called I Am Not Your Negro and, and basically goes through his life, but also uses his, uh, his interviews and his writings. It's amazing. I mean, this is all 50 years ago, right? You could li literally listen to some of the stuff that they're talking about, and it's exactly the same issues that we're dealing with now. And you have to think, hey, wait a minute. Did anything change since the 1960s for the Black Americans, right? So thumbnail sketch again, OK? Please, this is sort of a, a very loose and kind of rough sketch of American history that I kind of know. And I, I, I might be wrong, but OK, so this is what I know. 1492, right? Columbus sailed the, uh, the sea blue, right? So 1492, Columbus landed in the Bahamas and the transatlantic slave trade started. Now, for the North, for North America, for the, the present United States, it started a little later. The first official colony was, many of you guys know this, Jamestown in Virginia that was founded in 1607. Two years later, 1609, first enslaved people were taken and arrived. So from 1609 to the Civil War, which started in 1861, that's like 250 years. Slaves grew to 4 million in number in the United States. Now, this is something I learned, which I didn't know. Okay, so transatlantic slave trade began soon after Columbus arrived. And something like more than 10 million enslaved people were forced to land in South America, the Bahamas, Jamaica, and the Caribbeans, the Central America that we know now, and the North and North America. Now, the thing that surprised me was enslaved people who arrived in the US, they were only 5%, 5% of the 10 million, which is only 500,000, right? So you kind of ask yourself, wait a minute, 500,000, but by 1850s, we had 4 million? How did that happen? Oh, it's another fact. Although slavery only ended after the Civil War in 1865, new slaves didn't come. So there was a law, okay, no more transatlantic slaves from basically 1807. However, from 1807 to 1850, slave population in the United States exploded, okay, to 4 million. How did that happen? Well, there was a very deliberate breeding program. Okay, so I'm just going to read this. This is from Wikipedia. Slave breeding in the United States was the practice in slave states of the United States of slave owners to systematically force the reproduction of slaves to increase their returns. Slave breeding included coerced sexual relations between male and female slaves, forced pregnancies of slaves, and favoring female slaves who could produce a relatively large number of children. The objective was to increase the number of slaves without incurring the cost of purchase and to fill labor shortages caused by the termination of the Atlantic slave trade. Okay, there it is. So, of course, slavery is part of United States history. You know, we don't think twice about it. Okay, yeah, of course, that's... But if you just kind of dig into what kind of inhumane institution this was, how mothers were torn away from their children and just sold, it was just unbelievable, right? And 
you know, this is something else that I learned. I mean, one of the biggest impetus of the abolitionist movement and even the Civil War was the book Uncle Tom's Cabin, right? Um, so uh, that was written, oh, the author just escapes me. But she wrote the book because she witnessed firsthand slave trading in Kentucky, and she witnessed the horrendous separation, selling of a mother from her children. And later on, she wrote about it as a novel. And for the first time in American history, white people got a glimpse of what kind of institution slavery really was. See, before that, nobody knew the inner, inner goings of slavery. Everybody didn't want to know about it. So it was shot. Nobody wanted to see it, you know, out of sight, out of mind. But this novel forced Americans to read it. And as they learned of the story, there was an upheaval, okay? And Lincoln met the author and, and he basically said, ah, you're the little woman who started the Civil War, right? So in other words, it's our duty as Christians, as God's people, to know the history of these people whom we can just kind of label as foreigners, label as strangers. There's stories to these people. And we need to know the story because God gave us our stories. And that's important. And I can go on and on. I mean, look, the Southern slavery and the, uh, the North, the, the cause of the Civil War, and a lot of people, it's very complicated, very, very controversial, but the root cause of it was slavery right? The southern states, they could not imagine their life apart from slavery because they needed slaves to cultivate their crops. It was an agrarian society in the south. Cotton, tobacco, sugar, need a ton of slave labor. However, the north was industrialized, so they didn't need, they didn't need slaves as much. The problem was economy, really, right? And if you think about it, these cotton, tobacco, sugar, these aren't essential things for life. These are kind of luxuries. That's kind of frightening if you think about it. The luxuries are the things that kept the institution of slavery alive. Where there's demand, there is going to be supply, right? So even after the, after the, slave, after the Civil War, what happened? Well, there was Reconstruction. That didn't work after the, the troops left the southern states. There was Jim Crow. There was convict leasing. I mean, slavery, in other, there was also sharecropping. It just continued on in different forms until 1964 when there was a civil rights legislation. And even until now, the remnants of all of that, you can't just legislate something, it's gone. The attitudes, the entrenched systemic oppression still lives. And I believe that this God is saying to us, look, I am holy. I hate this kind of oppression. It's against my character. And I want you to be the agents of stopping this kind of evil because it's against the very essence of who I am. So know your story, history, know the story and the history of the strangers and the foreigners who are among you. Number two, do this because I, your holy God is telling you to do this. It's almost like God is saying, you know, to the Israelites, look, I know how stubborn you guys are. Even if I appeal to your experience and empathy, I know that you're just going to do what you want to do. I know that it's economy and all of that. And if you're not going to even empathize and you're not going to draw on your own experience of being oppressed and being slaves in Egypt, do it because I'm telling you, because I am your holy God, right? God resorts to this. But there's more, I think. I think God is saying, do this because I, your holy God, considers this very, very important. How you treat strangers and foreigners is a matter of how you reflect my character as my people. And in a way, if you think about it, God has faithfully followed God's own instructions toward us. You see, because of our sin and because we're such stiff-necked people, we have become alienated from God, right? And we, de we deserve God's wrath 
And we have become foreigners and strangers to God. But God did not oppress us. God did not harm us. God did not cut the lifeline from us. God did not take advantage of us because of our sins. God was patient. God did not harm us. Number two, rather God accepted us as sinners and strangers, foreigners to God's holiness. God adopted us through Jesus Christ and considered us as God's own children and gave us the rights to become God's heirs. You see, number two, right? Treat them as citizens among you. Yes, God gave us that holy right to become God's children. Number three, God gave God's own life for us through Jesus, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So God loves us as God loves himself. I mean, God has followed through these three injunction, injunctions toward us. And God is saying, look, you guys, I've done this for you. So therefore do this because I, your holy God, is telling you this. And you have received these privileges and love and grace from me. And if you say that you are my people, that you reflect my character, then it's proper that you do this. So I'll leave you guys, you know, with these questions. You know, so what does this message mean for Forest Community Church? You know, we can't begin to love strangers as ourselves if we don't right i mean how can we love strangers when we can't even love people who are close to us so the first obvious question is how can us lead the church love one another more deeply in practical and concrete ways even among you i think that's a prerequisite number two well what does this mean for welcoming guests and new members you know visiting a new church can be an alienating experience. And most of you know what that's like, right? So appealing to that, how can Forest Community Church welcome and love guests and extend God's radical hospitality to new members and guests more deeply that reflects the love and holiness of God? And number three, this is really the tough one, but it we can't avoid number three. It's easy to do number one and two, but if we miss number three, then we just completely are ignoring God's instructions for us today. For people and communities who are near your community, your church, who are experiencing hostility, affliction, marginality, physical and spiritual needs, how can your church draw near them, learn their stories and histories, empathize with them, relate to them their stories with your stories. Apply today's word and stand against mistreatment. Fight for their rights. Fight for God's justice for these people and love them as ourselves as we are loved by God and Jesus. I know it's tough. I, I'm struggling. We're struggling right now with our own community. And look, I, I'm an EM pastor of a Korean church. I'm actually proud to say that our church is probably one of the most progressive churches, not only in Atlanta and Georgia, but probably all of, all of the U.S. And uh, our senior pastor actually, uh, just about a week or a week and a half ago, just by himself, he went to one of the protests in downtown Atlanta. He brought like flowers, like roses, okay? So he, he went there. And he basically handed out to roses, to the police, to the, the protesters, and basically said, look, this is just a token of peace, token of blessing from our church. I'm from Korean Central Presbyterian Church. We are praying for you, and we're praying for peace and reconciliation, right? And he shared that story. Well, guess what? I mean, I was very moved, but I was inspired. But not everybody was inspired, and people were quite disturbed that, you know, our pastor actually did that in the name of the church. Because, and, and you know, as, as we actually go deeper into number three, here's the rub, right? And this is the difficult part. The history between Black Americans and Asian Americans 
and maybe particularly Korean American immigrants, historically, it's not good. It's not good. And I completely understand, you know, some of our people, they're doing businesses in uh, largely African-American uh, neighborhoods. And let's not romanticize the interracial relationship. It's hard. It's tough. You know, when I was doing ministry in uh, southern New Jersey, in Camden, which is one of the most violent cities in the United States, one of our members, a store owner who still ran a kind of a, a small grocery store in the inner city, her husband was gunned down by a robber in front of her. I mean, can you imagine the trauma? So look, we, we have to understand how difficult this relationship is. And yet God tells us, look, you cannot let your personal trauma be a stumbling block toward what I am calling you to be. My people who need to become agents of reconciliation. I don't look, I don't want to trivialize it. it's really, really tough, but we need to start the conversation. We need to start to struggle with these difficult issues. Wow, I think my time is up. Uh, my uh, I've uh, overstayed my welcome, but thank you so much for this opportunity again. And um, I look forward to further conversation, um, perhaps right after uh, this session. Lord, we thank you so much for this text. It's tough. It's hard sometimes for us to hear. Teach us, Lord. Help us to become holy as you are holy. And it's hard. It's, it's like approaching fire, and we need to be refined by your holy fire. Teach us, Lord. Help us to take baby steps, but surely toward your justice. Help us to love the stranger. Help us not to take advantage, oppress them. Help us to share power, privileges with them. Help us to love them as ourselves. Because we were strangers once and because you are our holy God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.